welcome to episode 144 of the Marvel Studios News Podcast. My name is Sean Gerber. I am not joined this week by Paul Herman, but that's my fault. It's not Paul's fault. Uh, This is just the result of an unusually busy schedule for me this week. It didn't leave me with a time. I pretty much have just this one window in which I can record an episode this week, and I don't have another time in which Paul would be able to join me. So that's on me. It's not on him. Uh, You will hear Paul again, presumably on our very next episode. So hopefully you don't mind hearing just me on this one. I know I've flown solo before for non-spoiler reviews and other things, and if you're part of our Marvel Studios News Patreon, you're used to hearing me or or just me quite frequently. Uh, But what I want to talk about on this week's episode, I've got a lot to cover. So the first thing that I'm going to discuss, it's going to be these new release dates that we have for Marvel Studios in 2022 and 2023. And then I'm going to review the Infinity Saga Collector's Edition box set, which came out last week, and I had a chance to check out everything that's on the bonus disc. So I'll be breaking all of that down and reviewing it for you. And then related to that, as well as some new content from Avengers Endgame that's available exclusively on Disney+, Plus, it's just brought up something that's been on my mind and that I've been talking about on the Patreon for a little while now. But now I want to go ahead and share it here on the main podcast, just about the future of how we watch these movies, how we consume these movies, how they are made available to us at home. So I'm going to be getting into that towards the end of the show. But let's start with those new release dates from Marvel Studios. So on Friday, we found out that Marvel Studios has added a fourth release date to their 2022 slate, and they've added four films for 2023. So let's start with 2022. So previously, we already knew that Marvel Studios had release dates booked for February 18th, May 6th, and July 29th of that year, and now they've gone ahead and they've added a release date for October 7th of 2022. And then for 2023, they have four release dates. These are brand new because we previously did not have any official release dates for Marvel Studios in 2023. So the four release dates that we have now, and these are from Disney, uh, in 2023, it's for Marvel Films. It's February 17th, May 5th, July 28th, and November 3rd. So we have eight movies. Between 2022 and 2023, we have eight Marvel movies on the way. So what movies are going to take up these release dates? Well, we already know one of them. We already know because it was confirmed at D23 Expo that Black Panther 2 is going to come out on May 6th of 2022. So we're left with seven more dates in 2022 and 2023 where we can try to fill in the blank. And I'm not going to... Maybe Paul and I will have to do this one day, but right now I'm not going to try and guess specifically which film is going to come out on which release date. I'm just going to look at the ones at the films that would be in contention for these remaining seven dates in 2022 and 2023. One of these I think we can go ahead and presume is going to be the third Ant-Man film. We found out that, and we discussed this on our last episode, we found out that Peyton Reed is going to be back for another installment of this franchise. And so if he's going to be back, and Michael Douglas also said that production on the film would begin in January of 2021. So that means it's going to most likely be one of these other 2022 movies from Marvel Studios. And I don't think it's going to be the October 7th, uh, 2022 release from Marvel. I think the third Ant-Man film would more likely come out on either February 18th, which it could do if it is starting production in January of 2021, or it could come out on July 29th of 2022, keeping in mind that the previous two installments in the Ant-Man franchise 
Those were also July releases, but I don't necessarily think that Marvel Studios is stuck with that. They're not beholden to that, so I don't really know right now which, uh, where the third Ant-Man film is going to land, but my guess is it's either February 18th or July 29th of 2022, but either way, it's taking up one of those seven spots that we're trying to fill in here. So we can t- go ahead and presume that Ant-Man 3 is part of this, and that leaves us with six other open spots. Marvel Studios has already announced a Blade feature film starring Mahershala Ali, and many have already speculated it just feels very natural that that film would probably take that October 7th, 2022 release date. We don't know if it's going to specifically be that release date, but my guess is one of these 2022 or 2023 release dates is going to go ahead and that's going to go to Blade. A second Captain Marvel film is probably going to take another one of these spots. And I'm guessing that movie, it could come out in 2022, but if you've already got Black Panther taking the May release date in 2022, I mean, I guess Captain Marvel 2 could drop in February of that year, although I think we would hear, we would have heard more about that film by now, I think anyway, if they were getting that ready for a February 2022 release. But if Ant-Man 3 is in February, then maybe Captain Marvel 2 would be in July. But I'm not as convinced of that. Maybe Captain Marvel would go ahead and be in 2023. I know that would be four years since the first Captain Marvel film. But we've actually seen more of that lately from Marvel Studios. I mean, the third Ant-Man film, if it's in 2022, that's about four years from the 2018 release of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Black Panther 2 coming out in February, or I'm sorry, in May of uh, of 2022. That's four years after, or a little more than four years after the February 2018 release date of the first film. So Marvel is getting more and more comfortable with these four-year intervals. And they've done it before. I mean, Thor Ragnarok came out in November 2017, four years after Thor The Dark World, and Thor Love and Thunder is coming out in November 2021, four years after Thor Ragnarok. So this four-year interval uh, between sequels in in an individual franchise seems to be becoming more of a... uh, It seems to be becoming more of a regular thing for Marvel Studios at this point. And if that holds, then I guess we can go ahead and pencil in Captain Marvel 2 for 2023. And so that leaves us with four more release dates to try and figure out here. And one of those has to be going to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. We know that's James Gunn's next film after he finishes The Suicide Squad, which is currently in production now. Gunn has said that he is not going to go back to work. He's already written a script for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, but he is not going to return to work on that film until after he has completed The Suicide Squad. But remember, that film is already in production. Even though the movie doesn't come out until August of 2021... I don't think that with that movie currently in production now, I don't think that James Gunn is going to be working exclusively on The Suicide Squad all the way until August of 2021. I know that, of course, there's going to be, even with production wrapping up probably either late this year or sometime early next year, there will be, as there always is on these kinds of, uh, on these kinds of movies, an extensive post-production process with editing and visual effects and all of those things. So that's going to be part of it. But I still think that James Gunn can finish working on the Suicide Squad sometime in 2020, even if it's toward the end of that year, at which point he can then resume work on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Now, he would have to take a break at some point, even if he finishes the Suicide Squad in 2020. He's going to have to take a break for a few weeks in 2021 to go on the inevitable publicity tour for the Suicide Squad. So that would have to happen. But that doesn't mean that he has to wait around for that to happen before he goes and he starts work again on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. He would just have to schedule in a break for himself from Guardians 3. So 
with Gunn resuming work on Guardians 3 presumably sometime or at least being available to do so either sometime in the latter half of 2020 or at the latest the first half of 2021, it's possible that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 could be ready in time for 2022, perhaps for that July 29th release date. If it's not going to the third Ant-Man film, that would be a good fit for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 because even though the second film in the franchise was a May release, remember the first film was August 1st of 2014. And so if you already have perhaps a, a second Captain Marvel film taking the May release date in 2023, which it could because the first Captain Marvel film made over a billion dollars. So I don't think Marvel Studios would mind giving the second Captain Marvel film that first weekend in May release date. And if they do, if Captain Marvel is the May 2023 release date instead of Guardians, then maybe Guardians would either be in July of 2022 or perhaps July of 2023. But it, it's it's possible. It, with James Gunn's schedule, it is possible for that film to be ready in time for 2022. At the latest, though, I would imagine that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is ready in time for 2023, which means it's going to take one of those release dates. And so now we have three others to figure out. And I know I'm not matching any of these films up with specific release dates, just trying to see what would fill these eight spots across 2022 and 2023. And so we've already set in Black Panther 2, Ant-Man 3, Blade, Captain Marvel 2, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. So that's five of the eight spots. So we have three more to figure out. And I think one of these three dates is going to some sort of Deadpool movie. We know via his Twitter account that Ryan Reynolds has recently met with Marvel Studios. So I would imagine that means that at least some work is being done on developing this film and getting it ready. And they probably have a target release date in mind. And the... The question with this film, as far as whether or not it could take up one of these release dates, it has to do with the movie perhaps being R-rated. And if it is, that means that Marvel Studios would put it out under a different banner. So does that mean that if it's under a different banner and perhaps not necessarily connected to the MCU, if it's going to have a different label on it, does that mean that it wouldn't necessarily take one of these Marvel release dates? Would it be one of the untitled Fox movie release dates that Disney has a bunch of that they talked about? In the, in the same announcement about all these release dates, there's a bunch of other release dates from other studios within Disney, including Fox. And so might Deadpool be one of those release dates? It could be, but I don't think so because it's still Marvel Studios making the movies. Even if there's a different label, if Marvel Studios is making it, then I would guess that this third Deadpool movie, which may not necessarily be a Deadpool movie, uh, just might just be a Deadpool-led movie like X-Force, but whatever this is, if it's R-rated and has a different label, if it's still Marvel Studios making it, then I would think that it would still be taking one of Marvel's release dates on this schedule. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pencil in Deadpool 3 or a Deadpool-led film like X-Force for one of these dates. And that leaves us with two. And this is where we get into some real wild cards here. Could one of these be the first Fantastic Four movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Could one of these, instead of a Fantastic Four movie, be a Doctor Doom solo movie? I know it hasn't sounded uh, very much, at least not recently. It doesn't sound like Noah Hawley's Doctor Doom movie is moving forward. But even if his doesn't, who's to say another idea for a Doctor Doom movie doesn't come in and, uh, and potentially take that spot? Kevin Feige on multiple occasions has said Nova is a character that has immediate potential in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Could a Nova movie be taking up one of these release dates? Thunderbolts seems to be something that Marvel Studios is working towards. I know 
There have been some rumors about that lately, but even before the rumors started kicking up more recently, there's been a lot of speculation about that, and I think there have been a lot of hints at what Marvel Studios is doing uh, that points to that possibility. Paul and I have speculated about that. Bringing back Zemo for Falcon and Winter Soldier could be one of the first steps towards having a Thunderbolts movie in the MCU, so that's a possibility. And then we know the mutants are out there as well. Now, even though Kevin Feige told io9 a number of months ago that the x-men or mutants that they weren't necessarily part of marvel studios five-year plan we know that marvel studios plans are not etched in stone they can shift and so it's possible for there to be a mutant based marvel movie whether that's x-men or something else outside of deadpool uh, which is already kind of set up with the first two films already existing even if they're not part of the mcu but for there to be some other mutant based movie uh, by 2023, that's not impossible. It's not necessarily something I would bet on just yet, but it is within the realm of possibility. I think out of these wild cards that I've talked about as far as what's most likely, I lean a little bit more toward Fantastic Four, Nova, and Thunderbolts than I do a mutant-based movie outside of Deadpool, uh, but it could be something else. It may not be any of these. It may be completely unrelated to this uh, because Marvel Studios tends to surprise us. There are movies that we don't necessarily see coming uh, that end up on their slate, and so I do feel like there will be something here out of these remaining dates that will surprise us, uh, but I, I have a pretty good feeling, and, and maybe it's just my own wishful thinking, that maybe one of these will be Fantastic Four. Okay, now setting aside the excitement around guessing what movies we're going to get, let's talk about just the very idea of Marvel having this level of output. Can they handle this? Now, we already knew that they were going to have four movies in 2021 because we found out about Spider-Man 3 being added to that year after the most recent iteration of the Spider-Man deal, sharing that character with Sony. And so that one felt like it might be more of an exception than a rule because... Marvel Studios has recently been doing three movies a year, and then adding a fourth movie It make, when they had already announced three movies for 2021 with Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and Thor Love and Thunder. Adding a fourth one with Spider-Man 3, it made sense because we were just figuring, okay, well, this is what they had to do in order to make a deal with Sony, but would this become a regular thing? For a long time, I thought that Marvel Studios would move up to four movies per year. And I figured that since they moved up from two to three and they were able to be more successful than they've ever been, not just at the box office uh, by releasing more films, but critically, they were as successful as they've ever been, if not more, when you factor in 2018 with Black Panther becoming their first ever Best Picture nominee. And then, of course, all of the incredible praise for Captain Marvel and Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home as well this year. They showed that they were able to maintain their really high quality standards at three films per year. So moving up to four feels like a natural progression, but I started to have some doubts as to whether or not that would happen when we found out just how many Disney Plus series Marvel Studios was going to be doing each year. I know they're only going to have one that's out in 2020 with the Falcon and Winter Soldier, but then look at 2021 with just the ones we know about and maybe more will be added. We know in 2021 that we are going to get WandaVision, Loki, What If, the animated series, and Hawkeye. We also know that we're going to be getting Miss Marvel, Moon Knight, and She-Hulk. We don't have dates for those. One of those may be added to the mix for 2021, or perhaps all three will be in 2022. But either way, with the thought of getting three or four Marvel Studios Disney Plus series per year, I really started to doubt Marvel Studios actually going ahead and making four movies per year, with 2021 feeling like an exception. But as I started thinking more about 2021, it felt like maybe that would be 
a potential proving ground or a testing ground for Marvel Studios. They need to make four in order to uh, continue this relationship with Sony and be able to make all of the movies that they want to make in 2021 for Marvel Studios films to be distributed by Disney. So maybe 2021 was going to be the experiment that if they put out four movies as well as all the Disney Plus series they're doing and everything went well, everything was a hit, everything uh, continued to be up to the really high bar for quality that Marvel Studios has set for itself. If all of that went well, then maybe they would start plotting out years in the future Maybe they would continue on with that idea of four movies per year along with a few series on Disney+. Plus. But they're clearly not waiting to see how 2021 goes. They're just planning on moving forward with this. And, and there was some clue, there was some hint that maybe this was going to happen anyway with Alan Horn recently saying that Kevin Feige was going to continue making three or four movies a year at Marvel Studios. But this is now more than a hint. This is confirmation that they're just moving forward with this increased output level. And so it does lead to that question, can can Marvel Studios handle this? I mean, we're not just talking about jumping from three movies a year to four. We're talking about going three to four for movies along with the increased output that comes with doing these Disney Plus series. So it is a very natural question to ask, and I do think Marvel Studios can handle it. And I know that's nothing new for me to be super confident in Marvel Studios, but it all comes down to trust, and it all comes down to trust that's been earned. And I believe that Kevin Feige is a better judge of, and not just him, but Kevin Feige and Luis D'Esposito and Victoria Alonso, Marvel Studios Parliament, the entire leadership team within Marvel Studios, as well as Disney, I think they are better equipped to gauge what they can or can't handle. They're better equipped to figure that out than we are. And going back to that idea of trust, I trust that Kevin Feige and company would not spread themselves too thin. I don't think they would be willing to risk their quality standards just for the sake of having more Marvel content out there. I really don't believe that they would do that. There's nothing about the way they've operated over the past decade plus that would lead me to believe that that's what would uh, motivate their decisions. So I think they're doing this because they want to tell more stories and they want to continue telling different kinds of stories and now in different ways across the big on the big screen as well as the small screen with Disney+. And so they're going to take all of the opportunities that they have in front of them so long as they feel confident that they can maintain their quality standards. And I think they care about that. I think they care about their reputation for quality and the standard that they've set. I would guess that they care about it just as much as we do as fans, if not more. So I really don't believe that they would bite off more than they can chew. And so if they feel confident that they can do this, then I am going to trust that they can until I'm given a reason not to. So if we start seeing a dip in quality when this output increases, when we start seeing more projects on the screen, big and small, in 2021, 2022, and 2023, if we see a dip in quality, I'll worry about it then. But right now, I don't think that's going to happen. So I believe Marvel Studios can handle this increased level of output. But what about audiences? Can they handle it? Do they have this kind of appetite for it? And I don't want to go too deep into this because we spent an entire episode, our last episode actually, talking about the idea of Marvel fatigue. And I do think there's value in believing that Marvel fatigue is possible because I think that can be a driving factor, a motivating factor in making sure that Marvel Studios continues to tell different stories and give audiences fresh characters with fresh perspectives. I think that's really important. So if you 
if you just assume that the audience will never become fatigued, that they will never grow tired of the stories that you're telling, then I think that sets you up to be complacent and ultimately make mistakes. But I don't think Marvel Studios is complacent. There's nothing about the way they've operated that makes me think that that's how they're going to end up or that's how they're going to feel about things. So I believe as long as Marvel Studios, is, and I believe they are, as long as they are driven to maintain their quality standards, as long as they are driven to create projects, whether it's movies or series that feel fresh and original to audiences that feel different from one another, then I think audiences will have an appetite for it. As long as the stories are good and they feel different from one another and and, and audiences feel like they're getting a variety from Marvel Studios, then they're going to have a big enough appetite to accommodate four movies a year as well as these series on Disney+. Plus. Okay, now let's move on from talking about the next era from Marvel Studios and spend some time talking about one of the last steps in the original, the first era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Infinity Saga. So we're getting close to the end here. I mean, all the movies are out, of course, and they're all available in at least some form of home release. But we still have some final steps, some final milestones to go. We're not completely done yet because we may end up having... We'll see what happens on the award circuit for Avengers Endgame. But we've also got another step that was just taken last week with the release of the Infinity Saga Collector's Edition box set. And this is going to be my review of that box set. I'm going to talk about pretty much everything about it, but I'll give you a spoiler warning before I talk about the bonus disc material. And just in case you bought the set and haven't watched your bonus disc yet and you don't want to know what's on there ahead of time, uh, I will give you a heads up so that way you know when to check out. But before I get into discussing any of that content, there are other things to go over, starting with the packaging, which looks really great. The box for this box set looks really, really awesome. And I'm not talking about the outer box that it comes in, although that looks pretty good too. Although I know for some people, they had some issues with the outer box coming uh, arriving damaged, which really is not cool on the part of uh, Best Buy was the exclusive retailer for this. Really should have been packed with care in all instances because this is a very expensive box set at $550. So it, it really is a shame that, that people are experiencing that, especially when there's not really a way to remedy it because this is a limited edition set that is already sold out. And so there's not really a way to exchange it. Uh, but in my case, I actually got a little bit lucky. There was a little bit of wear on the outer box for my uh, Infinity Saga Collector's Edition, uh, but it wasn't too bad. And the the main box for this box set, it is, it is in perfect shape, and it looks really, really great. It's got the Marvel Studios logo on it with an Infinity Saga logo on it. Comes in this red box, uh, and then when you open it up, you see this artwork from Matt Ferguson, which is really great, and you get kind of a solid lithograph of it. And then when you pull that forward, there's a letter from Kevin Feige in there. It looks like it's hand signed, but I don't think it actually is because it's. I've compared it to other people's letters, and it's got the the signature is the exact same with the exact same placement, but they did a different. Uh, they printed the signature in a different color ink to make it almost look like it's hand signed. Uh, but either way, it's still a really cool letter and a, a nice letter in there from Kevin Feige. And then with that same Matt Ferguson artwork. That that's available in a lithograph. Each individual disc comes in a package and the spines of those make up that same artwork from that lithograph. And so it looks really cool. Uh, there's also uh, an insert on the lid of the box set. If you flip it over, 
you see uh, they're just reprinted reprinted signatures of the original cast they're not they're not actually original signatures but it's still cool to see those signatures in in this box set even if they're not uh, even if they are reprints it's still cool to see them because it reminds you of course of the signatures in the end credits for Avengers Endgame so that was a nice touch and overall, the set just looks really nice on the shelf. I've got it with my uh, Phase 1 box set with the briefcase for the Tesseract and then the orb from the Phase 2 box set. It looks really great. So as a collector, I am very happy with this set. But now I want to go ahead and I want to talk about the content. So if you have this box set, I don't really mind spoiling it here because I know a lot of you may have wanted this box set but because it's sold out. You may not be able to get it, or some of you weren't going to get it anyway. Uh, but if you did get it and you haven't watched your bonus disc yet and you don't want to be spoiled, uh, then please pause the show and come back after you have finished watching everything that's on that bonus disc. But if you're still here, then I think we are okay to proceed, or at least it's not my fault if you get spoiled. So it all starts with a very nice greeting from Kevin Feige, and then we get alternate scenes. Now, uh, up front, I will just say that everything on this bonus disc, outside of that greeting from Kevin Feige, it's all deleted and alternate scenes from the movies of the Infinity Saga. There's no documentary feature. There are no other featurettes or anything like that. More on that in a bit, but let's go ahead and focus on what's actually on this bonus disc. So the first alternate scene is from Iron Man. You already know what this one is. We've talked about it on the show, and it was, of course, released ahead of time a couple of months back. This is an alternate version of the post credit scene from Iron Man in which Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury actually drops hints that refer to the Hulk, Spider-Man, and even the X-Men in the post credit scene for Iron Man. So we already talked about that uh, previously, so I won't go into too much there. The next alternate scene is from Iron Man 2. It's another version of the video that Tony watches in that film where his father, Howard Stark, actually speaks directly to the camera, so speaks to Tony Stark, plants a, a message for Tony in the future. And so it, it's Howard speaking to his son. This version is a little bit different. It's a little bit more sentimental than the version that's in that's actually in Iron Man 2. Also in this version, Howard Stark is actually holding on to the, that toddler version of Tony Stark. So he's holding his son uh, as a toddler while speaking to his adult son in the future in the video. And so it's a really nice touching scene, but I think the version that they have in Iron Man 2 that they kept for Iron Man 2 works just fine. The next alternate or extended scene comes from Thor. And I say extended because it's not a scene, it's not so much a scene that isn't in the movie, it's just more of it. It's when Lady Sif and the Warriors 3 first arrive in New Mexico. Uh, so we see Volstag lifting up a car to get a ball for a little girl uh, that had rolled into the street. And then we see uh, there's a bit where those shield spies that were on top of the roof and they were the ones calling in when they saw Lady Sif and the Warriors 3. Uh, you It cuts to Volstag showing up behind them and knocking them out because he doesn't like, uh, like spies. So it was an extended version of that scene from Thor. And then we go to Thor The Dark World, and this was, I think, the biggest difference and the biggest departure that we saw in any of these scenes. It is a completely different ending to Thor The Dark World. Thor wakes up after the final battle with Malekith. Thor wakes up on Earth. Odin is there, and he's Odin, not Loki. Uh, Jane and Thor then break up. Jane actually really did dump him, as they talked about in Thor Ragnarok, although I don't think they were referring to this specific scene, since Jane and Thor were still together in Avengers Age of Ultron. But anyway, uh, Jane breaks up with Thor because she realizes that 
she doesn't want to go to Asgard and be useless there. She wants to to continue her life's work on Earth, and Thor's obligations on Asgard are inevitably going to pull him away and thus pull them apart. So she would rather go ahead and break it off now because it, it pretty much is Thor being destined to be king. He doesn't refuse the throne in this version of it. So after Jane and Thor part ways, Odin and Thor return to Asgard. Thor oversees the Asgardians' training, and they stop to look at him, and now Odin's ravens have actually come to Thor, and he says, let us begin. So he's not necessarily king yet, because Odin is still there and still alive and not in the Odin sleep, and they haven't formally uh, exchanged the throne, or the throne hasn't formally been passed on to Thor. But at, this is a Thor who is accepting becoming king, uh, as opposed to a version of Thor who refused the throne at the end of the theatrical cut of Thor the Dark World. And so this is very different. There is no indication in this alternate ending of Thor the Dark World that Loki is alive. And I think this pretty much confirms what a lot of people have suspected for a long time. And maybe there's also been uh, there's been talk about it in, in interviews as well. I'm trying to remember. But, but Loki, it seems like he really did die in Thor the Dark World. And then a decision was made during uh, or to go do reshoots and additional photography that would basically resurrect Loki. Now, maybe he was going to be resurrected anyway, uh, but he wasn't in this alternate version of Thor the Dark World, or at least there was no implication yet that he had been. Maybe he was going to be resurrected in a, a mid- or post credit scene in this version of Thor the Dark World, but it certainly seems like something changed, uh, perhaps, of course, as many have speculated, because of Loki's increased popularity coming after his turn in The Avengers. But this alternate ending for Thor The Dark World, it might be my favorite of any of the content on this bonus disc because, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think this is better than the ending that they went with for Thor The Dark World. I mean, I, I think they definitely should have, I agree with the decision to resurrect Loki and have him end up on the throne at the end of Thor The Dark World. I think that was the right call. But I wish they had found a way to keep some of this material in, even if they had to reshoot it to make it make more sense with other creative decisions that had maybe changed for Thor The Dark World. But uh, Thor and Jane breaking up, for example, I, I think that's something that probably should have been kept in this film. It didn't need to be, but at least there's there's more closure to that scene in Thor The Dark World than just this offhanded remark about Thor uh, being dumped by Jane in Thor Ragnarok. So I think it makes it, it, it adds a little bit more emotional validity to all of that. Although I suppose now they have an opportunity to make up for it with Jane coming back in Thor Love and Thunder. So maybe this scene, it won't feel like quite as much is missing. Uh, but either way, I really thought this was an interesting alternate ending for Thor The Dark World. And there are parts of this that I like better than the theatrical cut. And I kind of wish they had, find a way, they had found a way uh, to merge the two endings. This original one and the one that we ended up with in Thor The Dark World. The next alternate scene comes from Avengers Age of Ultron. And this is the final New Avengers scene where uh, Cap and Black Widow see the new Avengers roster coming in at the end of the film. And this is the version that we've already heard about. Joss Whedon has confirmed this. Kevin Feige has talked about it before. Remember that in one version of this scene, Captain Marvel was going to appear and that's the version that we get on this bonus disc. There is no casting for Captain Marvel. There is just a stand-in for Captain Marvel. And it's somebody who could pass for Carol Danvers, uh, but it's not an actress that we know. And so they hadn't cast the role yet, but they shot it with a stand-in to give themselves the option to add in Captain Marvel later. They just ultimately decided not to do that. And I think that was absolutely the right call, because if you just add in Captain Marvel when we have no emotional investment in the character, uh, I really don't think that would have worked out out very well and I don't I certainly don't think it would have worked out as well as the introduction to Captain Marvel that we ultimately got in the MCU. 
The next deleted or alternate scene comes from Ant-Man. And so it's the opening on the Triskelion in the 1980s with Hank Pym showing up. And, of course, you have Howard Stark and you have Peggy Carter. And so instead of this just being Hank Pym being mad about uh, their attempts to replicate his formula and resigning from S.H.I.E.L.D., this actually cuts in or mixes in with flashbacks of Hank Pym on an actual mission in Panama but you have seen some of this material. Some of it actually did make the final cut in Ant-Man. Instead of seeing it here, what we saw in the theatrical cut is there's that file footage when Darren Cross is talking about Ant-Man and being just a tall tale or cueing Hank Pym to say that about it being a tall tale. Remember, there was some file footage of Ant-Man in action, Hank Pym's Ant-Man in action, and that's where they got that footage from. That file footage uh, was basically a repurposed version of this original introduction scene for Ant-Man or this original prologue for Ant-Man with Hank Pym actually in action in the suit in the opening. So they took that part out of it, just stuck with everything on the scene from the Triskelion and repurposed it as as file footage later on. So you're not totally, if you don't have this bonus disc, you're not totally missing out on that. Although there is much more of it uh, in this version compared to what you see uh, just very quickly in the file footage. The next alternate scene is also from Ant-Man, and this is just Scott when he puts on the Ant-Man suit for the first time in Luis's bathroom, and he's standing in front of the mirror. This is just him running through Paul Rudd as Scott Lang in the suit, running through different poses and imitating different characters. So uh, he starts out, because remember, he initially referred to the suit as a motorcycle suit, so he starts out pretending that he's on a motorcycle, and then he acts like he's C-3PO, and then he acts like he's Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver, so he just goes through some different things. It's funny, but of course, it, none of it is stuff that actually needed to make the cut for Ant-Man, which is why it, it didn't make the cut. The next deleted scene is from Captain America Civil War, and this is a different way of Zemo, as played by Daniel Bruhl, acquiring the Red Book. So in the theatrical cut, he goes to Cleveland, he kills that Hydra member, uh, and he gets the Red Book and then continues on with the rest of his plan. In this version, instead of going to Cleveland to kill one guy, he kills a bunch of guys. He shows up uninvited at a weapons auction, and one of the things, or I guess it's not just weapons, but weapons are the main thing, uh, but one of the items there is the Red Book, and so he goes there, he gasses everybody, takes the book, and then he's off and running with his plan. This scene, it was fun to watch, but I think the theatrical version uh, in Cleveland with just one Hydra member is way more effective, and I think it's a much better scene uh, than, uh, than the one that we have here, so I totally understand why it was swapped out. The next uh, extended scene that we get is from Doctor Strange, and it's a longer version of the final scene with Doctor Strange in the Sanctum Sanctorum. So instead of just us seeing Doctor Strange putting on the watch from Christine and then looking out the window in the Sanctum Sanctorum, this actually has something happening before that. There's an interaction between Doctor Strange and Wong. Uh, Wong gives Doctor Strange the Ancient One's private collection, and then Wong and Strange uh, exchange some verbal shots at each other, and there's actually another round of Doctor Strange uh, showing off his musical knowledge, as we saw in the opening of the film, except this time Wong actually outsmarts him and shows, uh, shows that he knows more than Doctor Strange does, at least about one particular song. Uh, there's also a mention of Mordo in this scene as well, uh, with it being mentioned that Mordo has been missing for a number of weeks. 
None of this material, of course, was necessary to the final film, but I actually liked that exchange between Wong and Doctor Strange, and I liked that callback to the beginning of the movie, so I really wouldn't have minded if they had kept that in the theatrical cut, because it was pretty good. The next uh, deleted scene came from Thor Ragnarok, so it was in the chase as Valkyrie, Thor, and Banner are trying to escape through the Devil's Anus. Now, we know that they were chased by Topaz in that scene, but in this version, they're being chased by the Grandmaster. Uh, Bruce Banner makes a move. The Grandmaster crashes. It doesn't really show definitively that he dies, so I don't think it, it really shows that the, the original plan was for Grandmaster to die. I think that crash pretty much sets up what we see from him in that post credit scene uh, where he decides to call the revolution a tie. There's another deleted scene from Thor Ragnarok. It takes place as Thor is being dragged into the barber's chair. Korg is wishing him luck while at the same time telling Meek that uh, he pretty much expects Thor to not make it and that Thor is going to perish. And it's just an I can hear you bit from Thor. And then uh, Korg explains that he that he and Meek were talking about something else. And the cool thing is that while we see a uh, a rough rendering of Korg, some, in some of the scene, we actually see Taika acting in his uh, performance capture suit, which is really cool to see. So we get a bit of Taika in action there. Uh, but yeah, totally an, a scene that was easy for them to cut. Uh, we have another one from Thor Ragnarok, and this is an alternate version of Odin's final scene, his final conversation with Thor and Loki, uh, and of course the arrival of Hela. What's different about this version? It begins with the location. You would know that you've seen some of this already. Uh, if you recall the very first teaser trailer for Thor Ragnarok, it showed Hela shattering Mjolnir in an alley, uh, not in Norway. And so in this version, it takes place in that alley. So it begins with an emotional scene between Odin and Thor. Um, Odin has, uh, he doesn't seem to be totally lucid, but then he kind of is just in time to have a heartfelt conversation with his sons, particularly with Loki. There's a really great moment between Odin and Loki, uh, with some great acting by Anthony Hopkins and Tom Hiddleston, um, that I wish had still made it into the final cut, even if it, even if they did need to reshoot it to change the setting. Um, but what's also very different besides the location, Hela arrives and she still shatters Mjolnir but she doesn't arrive after Odin has died, as we see in the theatrical cut. She arrives before, and she is actually the one who kills Odin in this version of the scene. And so while there are some moments in this version that I like as much as, if not better, than what we have in the theatrical cut, overall, the theatrical version, I think, is better. I don't think this actually works as well with Hela killing Odin. I think it works better with Odin having died, and then because he was keeping her at bay... When he dies, she comes back. So I think plot-wise, it, it makes a little more sense, although in this version, they try to explain it as because Odin is getting weaker, as uh, that that's what's allowing Hela to come back, that he can't hold her off anymore. So it still makes sense, but it also changes the emotion of the scene. And I think it works better with Hela having not physically killed Odin, because when she does that, it almost make, kicks it off as a, a revenge plot type of thing, that now Thor and Loki have to avenge their father. Not that they are explicitly saying that, in this version of it, but I think it totally changes the dynamic for Thor to have lost his father violently as opposed to seeing his father pass away and then having his world rocked or shattered, as it were, with Hela destroying Mjolnir. I think it works better the way they have it in the theatrical cut, even if there were some moments here that I really liked in this version of the scene. Uh, the next deleted scene comes from Black Panther. So T'Challa, Okoye, uh, Nakia, and Shuri, they actually take Ross, uh, Everett Ross, as played by Martin Freeman, they take him to hide in T'Chaka's office. 
everybody leaves except Nakia and Ross. And so then they have this spy versus spy chat in which they bond a little bit. They're trading attempts to get information from one another because, again, these are both spies. Uh, and then Ross tries to ascertain uh, Nakia and T'Challa's relationship status. We find out that Ross is divorced. We find out uh, from Ross's recap of what happened in Civil War why T'Challa trusts Ross and, and Nakia kind of starts to trust him. So it's a good little scene, but it doesn't really add as much uh, to either of these characters or to the overall film. So it, it, I'm sure it wasn't an easier one to cut, uh, but I still, by, on its own, I still like this scene. And then we get uh, a couple of things or a few things actually from Avengers Infinity War. It starts with VFX tests for the Outriders. They're running outside of, and then they crash into what looks to be the Sanctum Sanctorum, although I couldn't tell 100%, uh, but Hawkeye actually shoots his arrows at them. So uh, an early test that we ultimately saw some version of in the tunnels below the rubble of Avengers Compound uh, between Hawkeye and the Outriders. And then the next test was Corvus Glaive versus Vision in what appeared to be the Sanctum Sanctorum. And uh, Corvus Glaive is trying to get the Mind Stone out of Vision. And then Vision actually kills Corvus Glaive by using, remember Vision can actually control his own density. So he uses that to reach through the back of Corvus Glaive and crush Corvus Glaive's heart. Uh, then we get a VFX test of Proxima Midnight, and we don't see the characters, but it's a battle between Captain America and Thor. Uh, again, we don't see Cap or Thor, but we do see Mjolnir and Cap's shield, and uh, Proxima Midnight is actually able to defend herself quite effectively by grabbing the shield in midair and using that to deflect Mjolnir. Uh, so it was a cool showing from Proxima Midnight, but... It doesn't really match up with anything. And again, these are VFX tests, so they're not necessarily meant to match up with things that were in the final film. But these probably were some rough ideas at different phases. Whenever these tests were done, they probably were based on some early drafts or early outlines of the story of these two films. And then there was a test of a VFX test for Ebony Maw. And this one is really different because it changes Ebony Maw's powers. Instead of the telekinesis that we see in the films, this is much more akin to Ebony Maw's power set in the comics, and it actually is based on a scene from the comics. Now, if you recall from the Infinity storyline in uh, Jonathan, well, Jonathan Hickman's Infinity event in 2013, in which the Black Order were originally introduced, Ebony Maw's power set in the comics really has more to do with mental manipulation, and there is a point in the comics in which he manipulates Doctor Strange, and so this VFX, te uh, this VFX test was taken directly from that. It's Ebony Maw mentally manipulating Doctor Strange, and he seems to have done so successfully. Just when it seems like he's got control of Doctor Strange, the VFX test ends. And then we go to one with Cull Obsidian, and he's battling... I mean, they almost look like tactical shield agents, but some sort of military group. Uh, he's battling them in the snow, so it looks like in the area where he got dropped off in Avengers Infinity War. And his design is actually different here. So uh, if you've seen the Hasbro Marvel, Le Marvel Legends Build-A-Figure of Cull Obsidian, where he has almost more of a barbarian type of costume. That's what he's wearing here. So, you know, the, the existence of that action figure, as well as the art of Avengers Infinity War book, that already showed us that there were uh, some changes relatively late in the process to the design for Cull Obsidian. They did change him to more of the, the space bounty hunter suit that they've talked about. So uh, there was a costume change, but this was more of, his, of Cull Obsidian's original look in this VFX test. The next alternate scene was a different version and one that we already knew existed, uh, but it was a different version of the Bruce Banner versus Cull Obsidian fight. So rather than Bruce Banner beating Cull Obsidian himself with the uh, Hulkbuster armor or using that to uh, send uh, Cull Obsidian up to the force field where he was going to blow up in, uh, in Avengers Infinity War in Wakanda, 
Instead of that, well, he still Call Obsidian still dies the same way, but it's not Banner by himself. It's Banner turning into Professor Hulk. So in the middle of this battle, Banner and Hulk have an argument. They argue it out, and then of course figure it out uh, to merge with one another. And so at the last second, they come together, um, and it's still the Hulk who ultimately. I think instead of being the gauntlet of the Hulkbuster, it's the boot of the Hulkbuster armor that he slaps onto Call Obsidian, and he goes off into the Wakandan force field and uh, blows up and dies. So we get that change, although it's not like it was finished effects or anything like that. It's all pretty rough when we get Professor Hulk or Smart Hulk emerging, and so then the next deleted scene. It's a continuation of that where uh, at some point after this battle with Cull Obsidian, uh, Smart Hulk shows up, and the first person to actually see him is Sam, followed by Natasha. And so when Sam and Natasha see him, they think that Hulk needs a lullaby, and so Natasha actually starts the lullaby, and then Bruce speaks. And it's Bruce Banner speaking to Natasha in the Hulk's body, saying that he, Banner, and the Hulk had worked it out. And the existence of this scene, which had actually been shot because it was it was Scarlett Johansson and Anthony Mackie on set as well as Mark Ruffalo because some of it was a rendering of the Hulk, not a finished version, a rough version, but we're still seeing uh, Smart Hulk. Uh, but then in other shots, it was Bruce Banner in his performance capture suit uh, talking, of course, saying his lines to Scarlett Johansson and Anthony Mackie. So this was something they shot. This was something they really planned on making for Infinity War. And then, of course, we know uh, they ultimately changed their mind and decided to have Smart Hulk debut in Avengers Endgame. Uh, so we've heard about this stuff. We knew that it existed. And now we finally got a look at it in this bonus disc. And then the last piece from Infinity War, not the last one on the bonus disc, but the last one from Infinity War, it was an extended version of Spider-Man gathering up all of the Guardians after Thanos has thrown a moon in Avengers Infinity War. So it starts off, uh, it's Spider-Man slash Peter Parker and Mantis, and then Doctor Strange shows up, and he says that Thanos has separated the Guardian souls from their bodies. And, and we've heard about this before. This was another thing that we knew existed. We just hadn't seen it yet. So uh, Doctor Strange tells Peter Parker that Thanos has separated the Guardian souls from their bodies. And if their souls stay out of their bodies for too long, then they are going to die. And Peter Parker says he can't really deal with that. And Doctor Strange says he knows, but she can, meaning Mantis. And so Spider-Man goes off and he gathers up all of the Guardians. And then Mantis uses her empath powers to wake all of them up. And that's really all she does. We don't see souls being reunited with bodies or anything like that. She just wakes all of them up and then they are okay. And then uh, what we also see is, is Star-Lord taking some punishment as his body is floating and he's just uh, colliding with various debris that's out there on Titan. And so uh, when Peter Quill actually wakes up, he's really, really sore. And then Peter Parker apologizes for it, but also takes a dig at it saying that uh, Peter was really heavy, which is a callback to Drax and Rocket giving Peter Quill a hard time about his weight earlier on in the film. So that was a funny bit and it was a cool scene, but I, I understand why they took it out because it doesn't, it didn't totally make sense because the danger of their souls being out of their bodies, I mean, at least in this bit of it that we see here, it's not truly conveyed and the solution for it is a little too simple because it should be more than Mantis just waking them up because it seems like a more complicated problem than we've seen her have to deal with before. And so there should have been more to it if it was going to be properly executed. Uh, so for whatever reason, they ultimately took it out, but it was still fun to see. And then uh, the next deleted scene came from Ant-Man and the Wasp. And so this is Hank and Janet on a mission in Argentina, and they are actually the ones who are there when Elias Starr's quantum tunnel explodes and thus creates Ghost. We don't see Ghost 
in the scene when Hank and Janet are there. Uh, but we see her afterwards. We see the same aftermath with her being found that we see in the final cut of the film. Uh, but what was cool about this, I mean, I understand removing Hank and Janet from being directly involved in this and directly involved in the creation of Ghost. And whether that was for time or if it was for the creative, I mean, I, I understand the decision either way. Um, but what I did like about this is it was actually an action scene with the original Ant-Man and the original Wasp together. And that was cool to see. And before all of that got started, there was this good kind of flirty interaction between Hank and Janet as they were waiting to find Elias Starr and then, of course, follow him to his lab. And so it was just a good scene between Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer. And since I felt like Michelle Pfeiffer kind of got shortchanged in Ant-Man and the Wasp, I do feel like this scene was missed or at least something like it. I mean, the scene as it exists probably doesn't really fit in the overall structure of Ant-Man and the Wasp, but I wish it had been replaced with something else that just would have given us more of Michelle Pfeiffer's performance as Janet uh, and given her something a, a little more interesting to do because, I, again, I, I feel like she got shortchanged in the film. So it was good to see this here. Uh, there was another deleted slash alternate sequence of between Janet and Hank this time in the quantum realm. So instead of getting the bit that we saw with Hank in the house, in their house, um, in the quantum realm, uh, we get Hank being chased by some, I mean, less than microscopic being. And then Janet shows up and saves him from it. And that's the reunion between Janet and Hank. So the one they have in the movie is definitely better than this one. And the next extended scene or alternate scene comes from Captain Marvel and in this one, it's the sequence between Carol Danvers and the Kree Supreme Intelligence in the form of Annette Benning. Uh, of course, you remember this is where uh, Carol is able to shatter the inhibitor of her powers and start to go binary. And so what actually happens in this sequence, instead of it just ending with uh, Carol taking a shot at the Supreme Intelligence, after we see that shot, then it transitions from Annette Benning to a more comic book floating head version of the Kree Supreme Intelligence. Now, this was not a full rendering. This was a very rough version, but we still see that the comic book form of the Supreme Intelligence was there. And I think I probably would have loved to... I, think, I know I would have geeked out to see this in Captain Marvel, but I also understand that if if they are going to continue with the Kree storyline for Carol and have her go back, go after the Kree, go after the Supreme Intelligence, it, it at least gives me hope that we'll see that, that we will see the Supreme Intelligence in a form that's much closer to the, the original one that we know from the comic books. I hope that still happens. And if that happens, then I won't miss, I, I won't feel like we missed out on seeing that version of the Supreme Intelligence in this sequence. But if we never see it in a future film, then I probably will wish that we had at least gotten it in this uh, extended version of that scene in Captain Marvel. The next deleted scene comes from Avengers Endgame, although I don't really know that this is a deleted scene. It feels more like a VFX test because there's nothing really around it. It's, of course, Bruce Banner as the Smart Hulk setting up a test of the time travel suits. And he's talking to people who are off, uh, off screen. I mean... The test doesn't really seem to be much of anything. I mean, he's at a just almost looks like at a regular computer and he's typing on a regular keyboard. And that's part of the frustration of the scene is he's got these massive Hulk fingers. So, of course, he can't use a regular keyboard. And he's sitting inside the Hall of Armor. He's talking to people we don't see and we don't hear. We don't know exactly who's supposed to be going on the test run, uh, but we know that Tony is talking to him and apparently giving because he's reacting to that. Tony is apparently giving him a hard time. And then we actually do get to see kind of a a Savage Hulk flare up here because when Banner can't make it work, he loses his temper and he starts smashing things and kicking things around. And apparently he got close to Steve because he does apologize to Steve. There's a quick, sorry, Steve at the end of it, but this just looks like a really rough test. It doesn't even really look like 
an alternate version of the scene uh, where we ultimately saw the Hulk and, and a few others conduct a test that uh, Clint went on to test out the quantum suits and the time-space GPS in Avengers Endgame. And then there is the last extended scene that we get from Avengers Endgame and the last one, but not the last feature on this bonus disc, but the last extended scene. It's that last conversation between Thor and Valkyrie. And in this version, Thor misreads the situation and goes in for a kiss and Valkyrie corrects him and they end as friends. They end as pals. So it totally wasn't necessary to have this. And I, I get why it was cut in Avengers Endgame. It doesn't really fit. And I, I like it better with there being no real, uh, no real possibility of romance that either one of them is perceiving at this point in their relationship in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maybe things will change in Thor Love and Thunder, but I, I think removing, even though it's a funny bit, um, I think it was worth removing in Avengers Endgame. And then the last piece of uh, exclusive material on this bonus disc, they do the time travel test from Avengers Endgame. Not the one with Clint going back, but the one before Tony shows up where Hulk and Steve and Natasha are there and they st and they send Scott Lang back. Although, of course, remember, they don't push Scott through time. They push time through Scott. And the scene is exactly the same as it plays theatrically, except that they show us the scene with the characters cycling through 20 different languages. So this is what Avengers Endgame sounded like in 20 different languages as they just uh, they changed the language from one line to the next. So it was fun, but not exactly new content. And so that's all of the deleted slash alternate slash extended scenes slash VFX tests that were on this bonus disc. And so I really liked it. I really enjoyed the content that was on there. Some of the stuff was really good, like the alternate ending for Thor The Dark World. And even the stuff that maybe wasn't on that level was at least entertaining. I mean, the highlights for me, it was that alternate ending from Thor The Dark World. Some of the Ant-Man stuff, as I said, getting to see the Hank and Janet mission, having to, getting to see the original Ant-Man and Wasp on a mission, as well as seeing the original Ant-Man uh, on a mission in Panama, as I mentioned in the alternate version of the opening of Ant-Man. So some really great stuff in here. Also the VFX test from Avengers Infinity War, being able to see at least one version of the transition of Bruce Banner to Smart. Hulk since we never saw any version of that in any of the films as a Hulk fan and particularly as a fan of the Peter David run in which that originally happened in Marvel Comics it was cool to be able to see that so overall again I, I really enjoyed the content that was on here but at the same time I think it's fair to say that the amount of exclusive content that was on here even though there were a bunch of deleted and alternate scenes and all of that stuff was really fun it's still not enough, I think, anyway, to really warrant the price tag of this. As I mentioned before, this box set, it's $550. And, and at that price, there's not really... I don't know what they could put on the disc that would really and truly be worth $550. And Paul and I actually even did a show about this box set. When we found out that it was happening a number of months ago, we spent time talking about what we would want on it. What would actually make us feel good about it? What would actually make us feel like we were at least starting to get our money's worth? And at the time, we didn't know how much it was going to be. Uh, we were thinking, I mean, anywhere from 300 to $500. We didn't know what it was going to be. And so at $550, is there anything they could give us that would really be worth that price? Probably not. But I think they could have given more than they did on this bonus disc. There was no documentary. And I think the Infinity Saga itself... At this point, 11 years, 23 films, I think the saga, not just the fans, although that's also important, but not just the fans, but the saga itself 
deserves a feature-length documentary that really goes into how all of this was made, how all of this came together over the past 11 years, and how it culminated in Avengers Endgame. And then, yes, you can throw in some notes about the epilogue for Spider-Man Far From Home as well. Uh, but I think the saga deserves more than this in, a, in an exclusive box set. And I also think the fans, and I'm not big on the idea of fan entitlement, but it's a little bit different when somebody is spending $550 on something I absolutely believe that Marvel Studios could have provided more in exchange uh, for the amount that fans were spending on this, especially keeping in mind, and Kevin Feige even mentioned this before, so I know Marvel Studios was aware of it. I think he talked about this in a chat with Empire over the summer when he first started talking about there being a box set and including material on there that they had never shown before, and even some stuff that they might be embarrassed to show, although I don't really know that any of this is stuff they should have been embarrassed by. But anyway... He mentioned that, you know, the the assumption was that whoever was going to buy this box set was a fan, uh, was somebody who probably already owned the films, and so it would be somebody who would more likely be forgiving if there was any need to forgive Marvel Studios uh, for anything in this, uh, for any bad things that would have been shown, uh, any bad deleted scenes that might be included on this bonus disc. So with Marvel Studios clearly knowing, as they should have known, that the people buying this box set would be fans who already owned at least one copy of all 23 of these films, then buying the box set, it wasn't about having the movies because people already had the movies. Uh, buying the movies was about the exclusive content as well as the, the value of this box set as a collector's item. How badly do you want this box set on your shelf and how good does it look when it's there? And that's why my feelings on this Infinity Saga box set, they are a little bit mixed, but they lean positive. So on the basis of original, exclusive, new content on the bonus disc, what's there is good and very interesting, and I'm glad that I saw it. I'm glad that I can watch it again. I'm glad I have it. And so on that note, it is positive, uh, but there is a, a negative in their there being so much of an opportunity to provide more on this bonus disc. And I genuinely believe that they should have provided more, but on the value of this box set from a collector's standpoint, I love it. I'm really happy that I have it. I'm glad that it's on my shelf and it looks really, really good on my shelf. So I enjoy this box set. I don't regret purchasing it, but I also understand why from the perspective of a lot of other people, they would say there's no way this was worth $550. And truth be told, I don't think I could really truly say that it was worth $550, but I paid that much anyway because I really did want it on my shelf badly and it looks great and it's part of my Marvel Studios collection and I love it as a piece of my Marvel Studios collection. So I'm still glad I got it, and I'm not going to complain about having it, or I'm not going to complain about buying it when I know that there are still so many of you listening and, and those who aren't listening who really want this box set and would have been happy to spend the money uh, but just didn't know that it was out there, and I'm definitely going to talk about that. I know that there are so many people who really would have wanted to get this box set, and now they still want it as part of their Marvel Studios slash Marvel Cinematic Universe collection, and they're actually going to probably have to pay more than $550, perhaps significantly more than $550, because they're going to have to go after market. They're going to have to try and track it down on eBay, although if that's your plan... I would just recommend not doing that right now because this is probably where the price is going to be at a, at its peak is when or 
I mean, maybe over time it will be worth more on e- and it will sell for more on eBay than it is right now. But there is this initial panic of people feeling like they can't get it. Uh, they really want it and can't get it. And so that's probably driving prices up right now. I think they might settle down if you wait just a bit. But of course, I'll leave that decision up to all of you because it's your money to spend or not. All I can really do is give you my own assessment of the box set, which I've done. I'm still happy I have it, even if I feel like the bonus disc is a little bit lighter than it should have been. But I also want to spend some time talking about just the overall promotion of this box set or lack thereof, because it really is odd to have something like this. You have the Infinity Saga box set, 23 films over 11 years, all collected in this box set with never-before-seen exclusives on the bonus disc, and there's pretty much been zero promotion. I haven't seen Marvel Studios so much as mention or even acknowledge the existence of this box set throughout the entire run of it becoming it first becoming available for pre-order all the way through the release of this box set. Marvel Studios hasn't said anything about it. They haven't tweeted about it. They haven't done an Instagram post about it. It's just kind of been out there on its own. And even Best Buy, the exclusive retailer for this, never really said much about it. The link went up, and so some of us saw it because some of us were keeping an eye out for this because Marvel Studios did at least say that something was coming. I mean, Kevin Feige did say in his uh, acceptance speech for the, the of the Stan Lee Award at the Saturns and then, of course, in that interview with Empire. I mean, he's mentioned a couple of times that a box set was coming, and it was during that acceptance speech at the Saturns where he said that later this year, and it was that pre-taped speech, and it was actually filmed at the same time as his greeting on this uh, on the bonus disc, but he did say that later this year the box set would be coming out, and it would have all this ex- uh, this exclusive stuff on it, these deleted and alternate scenes from the Marvel Vault, and that's great, but then once it actually became available for pre-order, Marvel Studios never said anything about it, and Best Buy didn't really say anything. There were those of us who were looking for it, and so we saw it, and I pre-ordered mine right away. I posted an article on MarvelStudiosNews.com, and I, of course, shared it so that people had the link and they could try and pre-order. But I'm glad I pre-ordered when I did, uh, which was right away. I mean, within I don't know how long of when it actually went on sale, but... It was definitely on that first day and probably within an hour or so of it going on sale or at least going up for pre-order. So I ordered mine almost immediately or pre-ordered it, and I'm glad I did because it wasn't long after the pre-order started that all of a sudden you couldn't pre-order it. You could see the link on Best Buy's website or you could go to that page, but it wouldn't give you the option to pre-order to add it to your pre-order cart. It would just say coming soon. And then occasionally, although I never saw this again, but occasionally I saw reports from different sites of it being back on for pre-order and then it would be taken down and then back on for pre-order again and then taken down again. After I was able to pre-order, place my initial pre-order, I never actually saw it available for pre-order again. So maybe it was uh, made available for pre-order again, but only for short stretches of time. And I don't know if that's because... Best Buy didn't know how many they were going to get, so they had to cap pre-orders at different points until they knew they were going to have enough stock to cover it. But even then, there were issues because as I was getting emails and, and updates about my order being on the way or getting ready to be shipped and all of that, other I saw other fans reporting that they were getting emails saying that their pre-order had been canceled because there wasn't going to be enough stock to cover it. And so you had people who thought they were getting an Infinity Saga box set And then it turns out that they weren't going to get one because there weren't going to be enough available. And then you had others because there was no promotion, even though 
it was being shared on sites. Like I said, I put an article on marvelstudiosnews.com. I know other websites and much more popular websites with much more traffic. Uh, they went ahead and they shared when it was available for pre-order. People still don't see all of that. And a lot of people still rely on their official channels, their official social channels from Disney and Marvel Studios. And if that's what you're relying on for, uh, for information, and you should be able to rely on that at least for something like this, you should be able to rely on them to tell you when there's going to be a box set available of the entire Infinity Saga of 23 films that they released over the course of uh, just over 11 years. And that all comes together, and it's supposed to be a big deal. It should be a big deal. It deserves to be a big deal when a box set like this comes out. It should be promoted. Everybody should be aware of it, so everybody has an opportunity to try and place their pre-order before it sells out. Uh, but and, and, of course, I mean, it's limited edition, so not everybody's going to be able to get one, but... I don't really feel like uh, a lot of customers or potential customers and, and fans, really, I just don't feel like most of them even had a fair shot at being able to place a pre-order for this. And that really is a shame. And it's also just baffling. I don't get how or why Disney and Marvel Studios would put out this set and then not promote it at all. And also, it, I mean, with Best Buy not promoting it, I wonder if they just weren't allowed, if there was a limit to how much they were able to promote this. I, I really don't know why this went down the way that it did. It just doesn't really make sense to me. I know there's some speculation that maybe Disney was prioritizing the launch of Disney Plus over this because you had Disney Plus launching on November 12th and this box set, the official release date of it being November 15th. Well, if you're worried that people are going to spend their money on the Infinity Saga box set, and not subscribe to Disney Plus because they just spent so much money on the Infinity Saga box set, well, then delay the release of the Infinity Saga box set. There's nothing here that says you have to put it out on November 15th. Put it out later. Let people subscribe to Disney Plus and then put out the Infinity Saga box set. Do it a month from now. Do it two months from now. Because I, I know maybe you want to tie it into the holidays and people buying gifts, but I don't really think you need to do that. This set was going to sell out no matter when they released it because obviously the level of interest in here was very, very high. So if they were just worried about people being financially tapped out because they dropped 550 bucks on the Infinity Saga box set, then just move it away from the launch of Disney Plus if that's the issue. And if that wasn't the issue, then I wonder what else it could have been. I mean, the only other thing I could think of is maybe because this box set or the bonus disc was a little bit light. I mean, again, good stuff on there, but not enough to really warrant a $550 price tag. So maybe that's what it was. Maybe they didn't want to promote it heavily because they didn't want it to be... Uh, maybe they, they wanted to make sure that only diehard fans... And I'm not saying if you didn't get one, you're not a diehard fan. But maybe they just wanted to set it up in a way that the people who got it were the people who were really seeking it out and might therefore be less likely to complain about what is and isn't on that bonus disc. Maybe Disney figured that this set would only be worth $550 or it would be the it would come closest to being worth $550 for the fans who were who wanted this so badly that they weren't even waiting for an announcement for a pre-order. They just kept checking Best Buy over and over again every day until finally a pre-order popped up and they immediately placed theirs. Maybe they thought that group would be the least likely to complain about value. Whereas if Disney aggressively promoted this box set, maybe that would result in, in more people buying. Although, I mean, if it would still be the same amount of people if it was the same limited number of, of sets that they put out. But maybe they figured they would it would cross over with people who might be 
uh, a little less willing uh, to forgive Disney for what is and isn't on this box set or Marvel Studios for what is and isn't on, in this box set or on the bonus disc. Uh, they felt like there might be more people complaining about the lack of value, just like there were people who complained about the uh, the re-release of Avengers Endgame and how much was included and, and what specifically was included with the additional material on that film. Maybe they thought that was going to be an issue. Uh, I'm really not sure what the thought process was, or maybe they just figured that regardless of what of who was or was who was less or more likely to complain about the value they were getting in exchange for the $550 price tag. Maybe it wasn't so much about that as just trying to ensure that the people who got this box set really were people who were actively seeking it out. But I don't know that that's the right approach either because there are a lot of people I know who are diehard Marvel fans and also diehard fans of physical media in addition to their Marvel Studios fandom who really want this box set and weren't able to get it because they didn't know that it was out there. They didn't know that they could pre-order it and they didn't or, or that it was going to be sold out immediately on pre-order. I think a lot of people there's just a general lack of information about this box set and the only other thing I can think of as to why this wasn't promoted properly, because this box set deserved to be promoted properly and fans deserve to be better informed about it. And so the only other reason I can think of is if Disney just didn't care. If Dis- Because we already know that Disney doesn't love physical media. They avoided the 4K release for as long as they could. They don't release the best version of their films at home via disc. If you want to watch, for example, a Marvel movie, if you have a TV that's Dolby Vision capable and you'd like to watch your Marvel movie with Dolby Vision, you can't do that via your your 4K Blu-ray disc. You have to do that via the digital copy by accessing the Vudu app. That's how you're going to do it. And so Disney has been prioritizing digital over physical for a while. And so is this a sign of that? Is this just more evidence of it? But I would hate to think that that's the reason either, because even if you have, for Disney, if you generally want to prioritize digital over physical, I totally understand all the reasons why, and I'm going to talk even more about that before this episode is done, but this is where there should be an exception. This is a big deal. This is something that fans really care about. This is something that collectors really care about, and it's something where even though everybody knows there's nothing, or most people understand that there's not really anything you can put on a a bonus disc to make it other than I mean, a surprise movie that nobody knew existed or like um, a huge amount of feature length documentaries about each film in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something like that. There's not much any fan would reasonably expect to be on a disc in exchange for five hundred fifty dollars. So, you know, in terms of exclusive content, you're not necessarily going to get your money's worth, but you want it anyway because it's because you love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You love the Infinity Saga. You love these movies And having that collector's edition box set on your shelf, that's the way that you, in your own mind, and I'm speaking for myself here, but I don't think I'm alone in feeling this way. I mean, this is kind of in my own way how I honor the Infinity Saga in my collection, or part of it, to have it there on my shelf because that's how much it means to me. That's how much I love those films. And that's not to say, by the way, that you only demonstrate how much these movies mean to you by how much you spend on them, and and whether that's in box sets or other merchandise. It's not that at all, but... For those of us who like to collect things, that is part of it. That is part of us showing who we are and what we care about by having it there on the shelf and being able to talk about it. Somebody comes over, they see the Infinity bo- the Infinity Saga box set, they admire it, you start talking about it, and you're sharing your love of these films with this person that you're talking to. And all of that goes into it. And it is a big deal when we have something like this where – a journey has come to an end in a story, like whether it's a trilogy like The Lord of the Rings or 23 films in the Infinity Saga, 
once a journey is complete and we can all put it together in one box set and have it on the shelf, that's something fans really like, something fans really care about. And it is part of the overall process, as I said, kind of one of those last steps, one of those last milestones as a fan um, of seeing everything once a journey has come to an end to see it all collected in one box set. That I think that's a big deal. I think it's a much bigger deal than uh, than how compared to how Disney and Marvel Studios treated it with a complete lack of promotion. And so that really, it really is a shame. I feel like the Infinity Saga deserved better. I feel like the Infinity Saga box set deserved better. Uh, and as I've said a few times now, just to bring it home one last time, uh, I think fans deserved better than how all of this was handled. And so this brings me to the last thing that I want to talk about on this episode of the podcast, and that is... Uh, something that we got that we didn't expect. So the Infinity Saga box set, yeah, there's some issues with that, even though I love the overall set. And, and as I said, I'm, I'm still very, very happy to have it. Just feeling bad for fans who didn't, I, I don't think, had uh, a fair opportunity to uh, to be able to get theirs if they wanted one. But there actually was a place last week where Disney and Marvel Studios over-delivered, and that was on Disney+. Plus Because Avengers Endgame, we didn't originally expect the film to be available on Disney Plus at launch, and then we found out it was going to be. So Disney and Marvel Studios, they moved up the timetable, got Avengers Endgame on there at launch, and not only did they provide the movie, not only did they provide all of the extra materials, all of the bonus content that accompanied the home release, there were also things that were not part of the home release. So there were six deleted scenes that were not part of the original Endgame home release. All of them are available on Disney Plus with or without commentary. There's Tony uh, taking one last look at the quantum suits as, as they're preparing to test them. There's an alternate version of the Hulk meeting the Ancient One, an alternate version of the Hulk having a conversation with the, with the Ancient One where they're determining how the, time travel, uh, how the time travel rules work and that the Infinity Stones have to be put back in place. There's an alternate version of the Vormir battle where instead of being Natasha versus Hawkeye or Natasha versus Clint to see who's going to sacrifice themselves for the Soul Stone, they're actually having to battle through Thanos' army. Uh, there's the scene that we knew about in the trench uh, where in the midst of the final battle, there's a little reunion between some of the heroes, including Tony and Peter Parker, as, and then the Guardians having reunions and all these heroes coming together and, and coming up with their final plan to get the Nano Gauntlet to the Quantum Tunnel. And then everybody starts charging back into the battle. And then there was uh, one last deleted scene of Tony at the way station, a.k.a. Soul World, as it's sometimes been called by fans, and even the, on occasion the Russos, uh, where in the way that Thanos got to talk to young Gamora after he snapped all his fingers in Infinity War. In Endgame, there was a scene where Tony, after snapping with all of the Infinity Stones, goes to that way station, and he sees not a young version of his daughter, but an older version of his daughter, Morgan, played by Catherine, Lang uh, Catherine Langford from 13 Reasons Why, and they have their conversation, and it ends with a nice little I love you 3000. And so all of these deleted scenes were really cool to see, and... It was, I'm so happy that they were included on Disney Plus, but I actually thought when I saw those deleted scenes, and, and it's great to hear the commentary, and, and, I, and I would also just say in case anybody's wondering, as much as I love all of these scenes, I totally agree with why they're not part of the final cut of the film. I think the Russos and, and Feige and, and, and everybody else involved, I think they all made the right call on uh, not having these scenes be part of the film, but it was fantastic to see them, and I started thinking as, these, as I saw these when Disney Plus launched, Oh, these must be on the bonus disc. You know, they, these will be on the bonus disc, and they weren't. And you would think that if it's going to be on Disney Plus and it wasn't on the original home release, it, it would at least be on the bonus disc. And it wasn't, which isn't a big deal if you're already subscribing to Disney Plus. Uh, but it wasn't just the deleted scenes. 
there were three brand new extensive featurettes. I mentioned back when we were talking about what we wanted on the Infinity Saga box set, and I've talked today about what wasn't on there. And there's no feature-length documentary or anything like that. Uh, but there are these three extensive featurettes on Disney+, Plus: Casting the MCU, which profiles casting director Sarah Finn and includes a lot of great moments. And I definitely recommend checking that out on Disney+, Plus if you haven't already. I mean, it shows Chadwick Boseman auditioning for the role of Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy. Chris Pratt auditioning for the role of Steve Rogers in Captain America. And it just goes through the process of all these, cast- all these major casting decisions in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's about... 18 and a half minutes long. There's another about 12 minute featurette called the road to Avengers Endgame, which kind of recaps the journey that Marvel studios has been on. And then there's a 17 minute featurette uh, called Tony Stark tribute that of course follows Robert Downey Jr. Along his journey in the Marvel cinematic universe and how we've gone through this arc with, uh, with Tony Stark as a character. And these are all really, really great. And if you add them all up, we're pretty close to a feature length documentary. So The content was there. The ability to have this kind of stuff on the bonus disc for the Infinity Saga box set, it was all there, but it was saved for Disney+. And that shows you, I think, it's it's at least some indication and maybe backs up that idea that the Infinity Saga wasn't promoted in order, in part, at least in part, to prioritize Disney+. Although, again, they could have overcome that by just not having the Infinity Saga box set released the same week as Disney+, was launching. But anyway, I think... When you, when I saw these exclusive features that had never been part of the home release of Avengers Endgame, and then turning around and seeing that they weren't on the bonus disc for the Infinity Saga box set either, it reinforced something that had already been coming to mind for me. So a couple of months ago, there was an Avengers Endgame beta test that started out in the Netherlands. And that was when we started getting feedback from people who were trying it out, and they were also previewing the content that was on there. And when they were looking at movies, and specifically Marvel movies, they were seeing special features were part of it. It wasn't just like if you were watching a Disney movie that had been licensed to Netflix, well, you just had the movie. But on Disney+, Plus, not only did you have the ability to watch the movie, you had the ability to watch the bonus content that would be added to a digital home release or a Blu-ray release. And so when I saw that, I started thinking, okay, I know where this is headed. And, and I've talked about this on the Patreon, so some of you have already heard me say it, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself for some of you, but I know not all of, most of you actually aren't on the Patreon, so I know this is going to be new to a lot of you, but I started talking about it, and I shared some of these uh, thoughts on Twitter as well recently, but when I saw these, the extra content, the bonus content being part of the Disney Plus offerings of these films... It showed me what I think is the future of this industry as it relates to our ability to access these movies at home. I think our ability to buy individual movies, I think the very idea of us buying individual movies, it's not long for this world. And this is not something that pertains solely to Disney. I'm just using them as an example because of the launch of Disney+. And of course, this is a Marvel-themed podcast and Disney distributes Marvel movies. But as I mentioned before, Disney has already shown their prioritization over of digital over physical. I mean, and it's not just the placing Dolby, making something like Dolby Vision available digitally, and Dolby Atmos as well, making the best video and audio quality for their films, making it available digitally and not having that same availability on the physical copies of their respective films. And there's something, again, this is not just Disney. This has been the common practice in the industry for a number of years now where the digital release is ahead of the physical release, usually by at least a couple of weeks. And now we have Disney taking this next step where 
not only does Disney Plus have all of the same bonus features as the original home release for a film like Endgame, but it's also got new stuff that the original home release doesn't have. So the Disney Plus version of Avengers Endgame is a better, more robust home release of Avengers Endgame than either the disc or the original digital release that happened back in July. And I think that's just another sign that eventually... We are going to see these studios, and again, sticking with Disney as, an, as the example here, I think eventually the time will come where Disney doesn't offer movies for individual sale. There might be some exceptions, which I'll get to, but they don't offer, as common practice, they don't necessarily offer movies for individual sale once they leave theaters. Because right now, we kind of have these two windows ahead of streaming. You have the theatrical window, so that's the time, of course, that a movie is actually in theaters. And then you have the traditional home release window, which is the digital release, and then a couple weeks later, the Blu-ray release, and that carries forward until a movie arrives on streaming, which going forward for Disney will be Disney+. Plus. And of course, it will be Hulu for movies that don't fit within the family-friendly Disney Plus brand. And so eventually, what I think will happen is that Disney and other studios will eliminate that initial traditional home release window. I think eventually the time will come where movies will be in theaters, and then even that theatrical window could be adjusted over time. We'll see what happens with that. But just sticking with the idea of home release and, and how we see these movies at home, where and when they are made available to us at home, I think once the theatrical window is done, then the movies go straight to the streaming service of the studio that owns them. Or maybe they get licensed to someone else if it's a studio that doesn't have its own streaming service. But most of them at this point either have or are going to soon have their own streaming service. So that means eventually the Marvel movies that Disney puts out go straight from theaters to Disney+. Plus. The DC movies that Warner Brothers puts out go straight from theaters to HBO Max. I think that's the that's the long game, that's the end game, pardon the pun, for home release for movies. And there are a number of reasons why I think that besides just the end game example that I pointed out. So every one of these studios that has their own streaming service or they're part of a company that has their own streaming service, they want people to subscribe and they want people to stay subscribed. And what's one of the objections that people have had or people have said about Disney Plus? I don't need to subscribe to Disney Plus because I already have all the movies. I already have all of my Marvel movies. I already have all of my Star Wars or Disney movies. So if everybody is able to have a complete library of the movies from a given studio, or at least a complete library of the movies they're interested in from a given studio, then it is less incentive to subscribe or remain subscribed to a given streaming service. Whereas if you don't have the option of, of having a complete library that you own by yourself, then you need to stay subscribed. If you want a complete Marvel Studios library, now effectively, this will already be true because of the Disney Plus series, but I think it enhances the value on Disney Plus or the necessity of something like Disney Plus if you add movies to that same mix where you say, if you want to have a complete library of these movies, you need to stay subscribed to our streaming service. So if you want to have all the Marvel movies going forward, you got to stick with Disney+. Plus. You want all the DC movies? Stick with HBO Max and on down the line for the various franchises across various studios as well as the rest of their movie and television libraries. Now, I'm well aware that as I say all of this, it sounds like I'm arguing that studios are ultimately going to be trapping customers in these streaming subscriptions. But that's not really how it's going to go down because customers are going to want this. 
most customers are going to prefer this method of home release distribution for movies from studios. And the reason why is because the individual customer is actually going to save money and therefore see more value in a given streaming service than they do right now. There's a bit of planned obsolescence at work here because if you're Disney and you have a bunch of potential customers or you have a bunch of Disney Plus subscribers, it's only natural for people to figure out, just as some people have already figured out when these movies were being licensed to Netflix or other streaming platforms, people figure out that if they want to watch these movies again at home, they don't actually have to buy them. And it's so much more apparent now with the existence of Disney Plus that if you love Marvel movies, well, you don't have to keep buying them in order to have a complete library. You don't have to spend, with going back to the idea of Marvel Studios making now four movies a year, and if you say the average price of a 4K movie, let's just go ahead and say it's $25, although depending on if you're buying steelbooks or whatever, it might be more than that. Let's just go ahead and say it's $25. Well, that's 100 bucks a year in individual Marvel movies. Well, the annual price for Disney Plus is $69.99 a year, so... If all you care about is Marvel movies, and Disney Plus is offering a lot more than Marvel movies, but if all you care about is Marvel movies, then you can have every Marvel movie for $70 a year as opposed to $100 to keep adding all four new Marvel movies every year. So you're saving 30 bucks a year. But the value is so much greater than that because, again, you're getting so much more than the Marvel movies. You're also getting the Marvel Studios original series and everything else that's there on Disney Plus. So most customers will see this as... I'm going to pay for Disney Plus anyway, except now I don't have to pay additional money for individual copies of movies. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to wait a few months until they show up on Disney Plus because not only am I going to get the movie, I'm going to get all the same extras that are on the Blu-ray or the digital release of that film. And so when Disney eventually makes a move to eliminate individual sales, it would be because there probably aren't as many individual sales left. The, uh, the group of us who buy individual movies and buy physical copies, we're just going to get smaller and smaller each year until eventually Disney isn't really giving up much revenue by eliminating the traditional home release window and just going straight from theaters to Disney Plus or Hulu. It's just going to make more sense, and it's going to add value because as a consumer who's either already given up on the idea of buying individual movies or somebody who might reach that conclusion within the next several years... Disney Plus is going to be even more valuable to you when you're getting their newest movies three months after they hit theaters instead of five to six months after they hit theaters. And at the same time, you are never having to pay for more than just your streaming subscription. You're not paying outside of that to purchase or rent an individual movie. So it makes it that much easier. It makes it that much more convenient and ultimately makes it that much more valuable to the consumer to go straight from theaters to streaming. And it does so in such a way because how is Disney going to compensate for this loss of revenue? Well, a big chunk of that is going to, of course, be through additional subscriptions because more people will subscribe when they realize that's the only way they're going to get these movies. Although by then, so many people will already be subscribed anyway. But yes, Eventually, we all have suspected this since uh, Disney uh, announced their pricing for Disney Plus. The price will go up. The price has gone up for Netflix. The price will go up for Disney Plus. The price will go up for HBO Max. The prices will go up over time. But even then, it's still going to be a good value if you're going straight from theaters to streaming because, from the perspective of a customer, yeah, they might be paying a little bit more per month for Disney Plus now or a little bit more per year, but it's still less than they were spending. 
in order to have on-demand access to their favorite movies by buying them individually. So if they're saving money there by not spent by not making those individual movie purchases anymore, that's going to be more than enough to offset any price increase for Disney Plus or HBO Max or anything else. So I really believe that Long term, this is where we're heading. I don't know when it's going to switch to this model. I just believe it's eventually going to happen. I don't know if it's within the next five years, within the next seven years or 10 years, but I don't think it's going to be that much longer, relatively speaking. I do think at some point within the foreseeable future, and I don't know if I'm defining that as a decade or maybe a little more, uh, but at some point, it's going to shift to this model because the only real objection to this kind of model will be from those of us who like to collect physical media. And there is a solution for that if studios care to offer it. For certain films, particularly for those that are part of franchises that people like to collect, that people like to have physical copies of, then what studios can do is they can offer limited edition physical copy releases, whether that's exclusive steelbooks at Best Buy or something else. They can offer limited edition physical copy releases for fans, for collectors who want those kinds of things. But because they won't make as many and it'll be these limited edition runs, they'll charge more for them. So if you want to have a physical 4K copy of all of your Marvel movies, you might have to start paying more for each individual movie if studios care to offer this kind of option. But one thing they may do is they may, in order to prevent people from being able to build their own library or at least being able to do so quickly, one other, there are other things the studios can do uh, in order to get what they want out of it while still offering what collectors want out of it, what fans want out of it. And you can, of course, put the physical Blu-ray, the limited edition release date for individual movies. You can set that well after the Disney Plus release date or the streaming date for whatever studio it is. Or another option would be to not release physical copies of individual movies, but for the example of something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, only do box set collections when a phase is completed or a saga is completed or something like that. So I don't know that there's ever going to be a time where physical media completely goes away, although I wouldn't be shocked if it did. But I do think we're going to move to a different model here because there's really not going to be much of a much point in people buying digital copies of movies if they're going to have all the same features three months later. All that's left are people who want things for their physical collection, people who want things on the shelf. And studios will either ignore that demand or if they want to cater to it, then they will offer some type of limited edition run of physical copies of movies. But the way most people consume movies and, and do so happily, by the way, and have their newest Marvel and Star Wars and DC and Harry Potter and whatever other franchise movies or non-franchise movies they want... I think this is the direction we're heading. So movies that don't just go straight to streaming, the ones that start in theaters first, I think their next step will eventually just be going to their respective streaming service as opposed to being made available first as individual digital releases and physical copies on 4K Blu-ray. Okay, now before I get out of here, I just want to say thank you very much to Timothy G. Torch. Timothy is the latest patron over at patreon.com slash Marvel Studios News, and we have a lot of exclusive content on our Patreon, and that's where I've uh, initially started talking about some of the stuff of what I see as the future of home release for a lot of these movies, uh, but we have all kinds of other exclusive shows. We do Patreon credit scenes, so that's where we, we discuss an additional topic on top of the main show, so for this week, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the Loki Disney Plus 
series for some casting news that we have related to that. There's also a Monday through Friday Daily Bugle news show that we have. We also have a Patreon-exclusive Discord community where we do watch parties. Just last week, to celebrate the launch of Disney+, Plus, we did a watch party for Captain Marvel. So we have a lot of fun over there, a lot of great Marvel conversation on our Discord community, and all kinds of exclusive audio as well. So for more information, and also one last thing with the, with the exclusive audio... If you do sign up, you do actually get your own private RSS link that you can put into a podcatcher like Apple Podcasts so you can subscribe and get all of your Marvel Studios News podcast content, the main show, and the Patreon exclusives all in one feed. You don't have to track things down in multiple places. So for more information on all of the tiers that we have available, please visit patreon.com slash News. And if you want to follow the podcast or follow the website, you can go to the website, marvelstudiosnews.com. Facebook and Instagram at Marvel Studios News and on Twitter at Marvel Newscast. And if you want to follow me, you can do that on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. Sean spelled S-E-A-N. So for Marvel Studios News, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 